This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 245, brought to you in association with Smart theenlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Louis Carbonnier, president and co-founder of French fintech Hocodor, to talk about fintech in France. Having super recently, only a couple of episodes ago in LFB243, covered tech in Berlin, I thought it only fair to give their long-time adversaries a chance to talk about fintech in France. You've probably heard of fintech by now, and you've probably heard of France. So, without further ado, plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Louis. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks a lot for having me. And, uh, you know, nice intro. And as someone who grew up on the German border and whose first language was German, you know, we're, you know, it's been a long time since we were adversaries with Germany and, you know, now, today, it's more about collaboration. Ah, well, I thought you were in the EU, which meant that everybody's an adversary in the smoke-filled rooms. Even <laughs> if when they come out in public, they say, oh, we agree on everything. <laughs> Europe has always been a bit of a, a tug of war. So if you're on the border, were you uh, in Alsace-Lorraine, the bit that kept switching sides and to this day has uh, Germanic wine bottles, but with sort of, what was kind of Franco-German wine. I like Alsace wines. Yeah, totally. I mean, actually, I was born in Champagne. I'm not averse to Champagne either, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, the English are the biggest importers of Champagne globally, but that mainly comes from German traders who set up the big Maison de Champagne in the 19th century. So think Boulanger, Roderer, Krug, those, uh, those famous and expensive bottles. So, and then I moved to Strasbourg, and uh, hence how I came to grow up between France and Germany. And at some point, I even moved to, to the German-speaking part of uh, Switzerland. So you know, it's all a, s- a small region where the borders are pretty, pretty fungible. Ah, oh, excellent. Well, if you go back long enough, you're all sort of relatively uh, similar peoples. But that was uh, some time ago. Excellent. So in terms of kicking things off, you being bicultural and all that, you, you said you quite like... Uh, Minor matters like sports, music and literature, which I'm sure we can knock that off entirely in about two or three minutes. But uh, is there much sticking with this cross-cultural thing? Is there much sort of literature, mm. shall we say, from the border regions of France and Germany, which, as it were, Janus-like faces in both directions and has a bit of a feel of the, of, of the two areas? Mm, that's a really good question because there's a lot of literature that actually... Yeah, like if you take the dialect in Alsace... So Elsässisch, it's literally a, a version of German peppered with French words. Words, and there's a lot of you know, as you said, back and forth over the years, and like figures like Erkman Chatrian, who've been like very influenced by the the Germanic part of their of their upbringing. It's even when you look at you know, the psyche of the an Alsatian person. There, you know, within France, that's a very centralized country. Even up to today, 
there's something quite specific in how we look at life. And you know, sometimes I joke to my wife, who's a true Parisian, that when I travel to Karlsruhe or to Heidelberg or to Zurich, it feels much more like home than when I go to Paris or to Marseille, who are like completely different places and organized in a weird sort of way for someone who's grown in a different you know, mentality. Yes, yes. I wonder whether you'd feel um, perhaps even more at home if you're in, in, in Switzerland, in the bits where the sort of the, the French bit and the German and the Swiss Germany uh, bits kind of sort of border on each other and people kind of speak both and have this bicultural vibe because as a sort of a, as a foreigner to the continent on this little sort of island northwest, which was connected by the, the Dogger Bank back in the day. Literally, if one was in France or one was in Germany with one's eyes shut and it's almost like your fingers in your ears, I, there's a different feel today between the areas, although going back to when you're all sort of version of Franks, there was less so. And actually, just interestingly, I, I do try and watch every video on YouTube of interest, which is uh, taking quite some time, and I think I'm falling behind. <laughs> <laughs> I think the list is getting longer. It takes a lifetime. Yes, quite, exactly. Well, I'm using it up so far on that, but... Uh, I did see one that had a, one of these fascinating thumbnails, and of course it's all in the art of the thumbnail these days to, to suck somebody into yours, which, and I, from a British perspective, English perspective, have always seen France as being centralised. But I think it was, a, it was really a, around the linguistic regions and the kind of, whatever you the type of peoples. There's a map of the type of peoples in France. I don't know what it was, but it was relatively recently. And there was quite a lot of linguistic variation. I mean, obviously, though, the Basque area and the Catalani area but also the, the, the northwest, the remainder of the Vikings that are still sort of being more Vikingy, uh, and, and you guys on the borders. And sadly, I didn't uh, actually watch it, so I know even less than I, I might have otherwise. But yes, there was this suggestion that this sort of strong centralization into being la France and Francais as our language is much more recent than I certainly would have thought. Yeah, it is. In a way, it dates back to the, um, the Third Republic and the way the education system was centralized and rolled out in the 19th century. But the reality is that you know, over the past 150 years, France managed to crush and lose any kind of linguistic diversity. And like, you know, with some friends, we try to maintain some kind of Alsatian dialect but it's really hard because no one below 50 years old speaks it and if you compare it to switzerland or even to an extent to germany like in switzerland from one valley to the next you have different versions of swiss german but with globalization everything tends to kind of harmonize but even to these days when you know when you go to zurich you don't speak exactly the same kind of swiss german as in lucerne or as in the you know in Zermatt or in Basel, and you know in a way France is so coercive on individual diversity, and it was like you know if if you allow me a, a, a tiny anecdote, but that says a lot. Like you know, after high school, w the best schools happen to be in Paris. So you, you know when you're 18, like m most many many youngsters I had to migrate over to Paris and we all arrived there in Paris with our regional accents or whatever was left of it and I can tell you that within two months you know teachers would laugh at you if you had an accent from the south of France or the remnants of an Alsatian accent and within two months everyone was speaking standard French and there's 
such so much peer pressure around it. Yes, that's been a huge thing in um, in England as well. I mean, um, when I was young, before any sort of globalization, and for example, Margaret Thatcher in 1978 removing exchange control, so you could actually just go and get foreign currency, was a huge deal. But before that, the vast vast majority of the country had never went abroad. And there were huge differences between the so-called ridings, the, the sub-counties within, within Yorkshire. That was a really big thing, and a massive difference between Yorkshire and Lancashire, and they were right adjacent. And in terms of languages, if you go to Cumbria, which is the, the Lake District in the northwest, yep. there's still Cumbrian dialect and words, which are a very um, different origin. But as you say, in terms of the centralisation, which reaches its reductio ad absurdum in terms of globalism, it ends up being one size fits all. Right, OK, so look, moving on from that to your career journey, as you say, you shuttled around geographically. Maybe you'd like to give your, the listeners a, a little bit of a, a background of where you're coming from, whether it's management consultancy or tech or, or banking, uh, and what it was that sort of led you to the uh, rather crazy, if romantic, decision to, to be a founder, to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, so my name is uh, Louis Carbonier. I'm 41 years old. I've got one daughter. I'm currently based in Paris, but I started my career in uh, London back in 2005 in management consulting. Worked at a company called Oliver Wyman for eight years, which is where I met my co-founder, Richard, who used to be my my mentor uh, back then. Then traveled a bit, worked uh, uh, from Australia for a couple of years, was a fantastic experience to be able to you know, travel across Asia for, for projects. And in 2014, I joined a company called Eula Harmes, which has since then rebranded as Alliance Trade. And they're a bit like the um, platypus of uh, financial uh, services because they're right between insurance and banking. They're the world leader in something called credit insurance, which is the insurance against unpaid invoices. And that's something very linked to B2B trade, trade finance. And that's when I had the idea for what became later Hokodo. So I set up Hokodo in 2018 with two co-founders, Richard, who's English, whom I, I mentioned just before, and Sami, who happens to be Belgian. So, you know, you can see that right from the start, we had this kind of multicultural angle to it. Strangely enough, Sami and I are both based in Paris, but the company is nonetheless headquartered in the UK. And I'm sure we'll come on to that. But there were, despite Brexit coming up, you know, we could see it already uh, arriving, looming in 2018. We thought it would be best to set up the company in, in London. And now we have about 100 um, employees from more than 20 different nationalities across London and Paris with uh, you know, more than half in London, but a, a growing growing office in Paris. Excellent. Well, we'll turn on to Hokkaido a little bit later in the episode and you can explain certainly to me and perhaps the listeners as well why you chose something that is a, apparently a Japanese name. Maybe it isn't, but it's uh, certainly very easy to say in um, uh, Japanese. But moving on to La Belle France and the centralisation, certainly post your great uh, dear leader Napoleon back in the day. Let's just start with uh, the history, as I always have to say, fintech is a silly word, but in the sense that it's currently meant, not computers in the 1960s did bank account statements, something like that. When do you believe that fintech as a thing really took off in France as such? Yeah, so I, I would date it back to the early 2010s when there was 
a kind of tipping point. So you know, it's all a matter of definition, by the way, because as you said, we could go back to the 1960s. But I think certainly following the introduction of iPhone 2007, suddenly there was a switch to, to mobile and a realization that you know, many sectors would digitize in the industry. And it's around that point that back in management consulting, I started to get more and more assignments that were around, hey, what is, so imagine a large bank asking, suddenly asking us, hey, what should our digital strategy look like? And you could see the first you know, founders pioneering some, you know, some new banks, some, some apps in the, in the fintech space. So I think tech started earlier than that, you know, in the 2000, and there are some like incumbent, or, and I shouldn't call them incumbents, but, you know, French scale-ups that with the first wave of founders that um, dates back to the first dot-com era. But for fintech itself, which is a bit more niche and a bit harder to disrupt because of all the regulation, I'd say it really started around 2010, 2012. That was probably the pivotal time. And many of the you know, startups that have become unicorns in the fintech sector actually go back to the mid-2010s. Okay, and so the context in which fintech is given birth in France is very much, of course, dependent upon the structure of financial services. Yep. Like us, even if you're a younger country, of course, uh, you've had banks for quite a while <laughs> and they've got quite a stranglehold on the market. Um, whereas in terms of episodes like that on Saudi Arabia, like that on China, if you go back, they didn't have such a strong banking sector for different reasons and therefore the genesis and the direction of fintech is very different in those countries. As I mentioned earlier, the episode on Berlin. Berlin, you will not fail to notice, Germany as a whole, I was about to say, has some large strong banks. <laughs> These days, next to nobody has large and strong banks, large and weak banks with a bit of sort of clever accounting treatment on the stress test, I think, and that includes America. Uh, that's another story entirely. But there is a large incumbent sector, and I presume that in a relatively similar way, perhaps even to the UK, but fintech seem to have taken off here a little bit more, that to an extent there were areas within, shall we say, financial services, which are much harder if you're going to found a fintech in France 10 years ago or five years ago or today, to actually squeeze your way in at the table because they've all got it, the banks have got it sewn up. I mean, how does that contextual environment appear to you being based in Paris? So I think there's... Uh... Traditionally, France is one of the most conservative regulatory landscapes, which you know has played to the to uh, the advantage of the French banks during the global financial crisis, where you could see that banks such as uh, BNP Paribas or Crédit Agricole were incredibly resilient throughout that period. But on the other hand, you have something which is well known as the banking monopoly, which has been more of a um, you know, a handbrake on happiness when it comes to innovation. And it's only in the past six years, I would say, that you know, incumbents have really started to welcome innovation and are, are now going with the flow rather than trying to resist it. So all the European regulation around payment has become fairly, fairly uniform. If you think of PSD1, PSD2, 
so sorry, I shouldn't talk in acronyms, but payment service di directives one and two. And these typically France would transpose with a bit of delay, but eventually transpose into its own, own legislation. But then when it comes to lending itself, this isn't really harmonized in Europe. And for instance, there are areas such as, you know, lending, lending to businesses in the UK, in the Netherlands, it's completely unregulated. Whereas in France, it's a highly regulated area, which makes innovation really, really costly. So it's no wonder that companies like, you know, Funding Circle, Market Finance have emerged in the UK, and you don't see that the equivalent in France. Yes, this whole eurosclerosis word or long-term below quotes trend unquotes GNP mm. growth in Europe, which is now spread to the UK, I see due to an excess of bindweed, due to an excess of regulation all over the place, due to an excess of control. And there's an interesting aspect, which I wonder whether this affects the subconscious or the conscious minds of the authorities, which is if you go back to France, it was much racier <laughs> in finance than Britain. You had this chap, I've forgotten when, I don't know, 1700 and something, John Law, who had a the yep. Scottish guy, totally, totally fucked, the cur fuck, fucked the currency and, and all sorts of things like that. And it was a, it was a catastrophe. And then you had your, uh, your great revolution in, in favour of uh, equality, fraternity or diversity, equity, whatever, all those kind of abstracty words that you French people love, which was all wonderful until millions died and they introduced paper currency. And then, um, as we've touched on the podcast before, it was only Napoleon's reintroduction of the gold standard and the whole Napoleonic laws around finance that settled the things down. Um, so do you think it's going back to the longer history? Do you think this fact that France was way too racy on currency and money... Uh, and severely burnt its fingers to the, to the extent of millions of people dying in the, in the, in the latter case, you know, inter alia, as part of the revolution, that led it to be, become such a conservative country. Because although we think of France as being conservative, in a sense, it wasn't always that way. Is it an overreaction or is it just kind of central control, as it now is in the UK also, has got out of, uh, out of control? I think it actually dates back even further than that. You're right in pointing it to some sources around the, uh, the revolution because the revolution is the you know, story of the bankruptcy of the, uh, of the French monarchy. And at the same time, you had you know, the bourgeoisie that was up and coming and thought they deserved a seat at the table. So that, you know, the whole regime crumbled and you know, John Law and uh, Necker were part of the, that general collapse of the French finances. But I think if you go back 500 years before, you have some, a kind of bifurcation in the European history between you know, the Catholic regime and the Protestant psyche. And in the Catholic mind, there's some kind of contempt for money and lack of entrepreneurship and the reluctance to take ownership of your own destiny because you know, there's a kind of general fate, which means that... This plays out in so many different areas of the um, of society, and then another another bifurcation I'd say is the kind of uh, fork between common law and the code civil, so the kind of top-down body of legislation which Napoleon introduced, which was great at the beginning because it abolished all kind of privileges and customs and things like that. 
because you know, in the old days France had a common law as a you know a monarchy just like just like the UK. But as this um, as the as society develops and, and as I'm sure you're aware, laws tend to pile up, and was what was once a practical code that you know people could go by becomes a monster. So if you take French labor law, I think it's about 4,000 pages nowadays. If you compare it with, the, you know, I don't know how it works in the UK, but for instance in Switzerland, labor law is about 200 pages. And it's amazing, you know, the amount of complexity and bureaucracy that it creates in day-to-day -day life. So, you know, I remember in the early days of, um, of Hokodo, we were, you know, an employee asked us how to compute their number of holidays. And with my co-founder, Sami, who's, uh, you know, PhD in physics <laughs> and much, smart, much smarter than I am, so proper rocket scientist, we're like, oh my God, I don't know how to answer his question. Let's go back to the text of the law and we look at the, the code. And we, we look at the difference between jour ouvrable and jour ouvré, which is basically working day versus workable day. And we read the definition and we're like, um, Sammy, I can't really understand it. I'm not sure. And he looks at me, he's like, no, I'm, I'm not sure either. And we do more and more research. And it turns out that our accountant himself had made a mistake. And like, you basically create a law which the entrepreneurs, the accountants, well, no one knows how to interpret. And you create that. I mean, the only people who benefit from it are, you know, tax advisors, accountants, lawyers. And it becomes just impossible to do business. And you put a burden on top of your productive SME layer in society that is just unreasonable. Yes, so I quite. think you have all those things. Sorry, it's a long rant. No, 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 no. I, I, I agree. And uh, as listeners will know to their cost, I'm very good at ranting on this point. I mean, it seems to me at this stage that uh, whatever used to be called the West, for the sake of argument, the continent and the former Anglosphere, yeah. uh, the way that this is playing out is that, and you can see it from the GNP charts and the industrial production. If you look at industrial production, global share of Europe, continent and, and the, the UK, over the past few decades, um, it's been going down simply because of all this insane bindweed. And I also believe we're in a, a governance crisis within the West. And if we went back for the sake of argument 50 years, I could argue that we have the common law. We still have a relatively minarchist perspective over here. You can do what you like and the government doesn't care about most of it. Whereas you guys, you've been told what you can do, a bit like the Americans, and they've written the constitution down, but we don't really have a, a, a written one. We do have a written one, but it relies on good chaps. That there were distinct differences, 50, 100 years ago, massively between the countries. But it doesn't really matter. America's got a bloody constitution, but they, the bloody negative elite just ignore it anyway, you know. <laughs> and, and as you say, the regulation piles up um, uh, on the continent. Right, OK, so look, so that's challenges for entrepreneurs all over the world. Uh, I suspect the work I'd be doing, which I won't, uh, this podcast in 10, 20, 30 years' time, uh, I shall have to move to uh, East Asia or, or something like that, where they're actually getting stuff done way faster. So just briefly then, on the geographical distribution, because we started with geography and centralisation and everybody being turned into kind of Parisians if they want to get anywhere, uh, as it were. And that's not just a Western thing. I was talking to a, a barman in Kota Kinabalu on, on, in Sabah in the autumn 
and I was asking him what he wanted. So what I want to go to Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> Every everybody wants to go as a, as a story of Dick Whittington back in the day here that you know the streets of London are paved with gold. People always want to go to the capital where the action is. So that, that's nothing new. But in terms of fintech, is France like? Britain, whereby you hear noises about fintech elsewhere, and that's nice, and we'd all like more of it. But actually, in reality, the vast majority is in London, full stop. Is, is it the case that Paris is pretty much it for fintech, or is it 95% or 99% of fintech? So it's very centralized in that respect. France is very much like the UK, whereas, you know, you could argue that in Germany you've got Berlin, but you've got uh, Munich as well, uh, Frankfurt to an extent when it comes to fintech. Uh, in France, it's still very, uh, you know, revolves around Paris, but there's been a, you know, a reversal of that trend. I would, uh, I would say, over the past three years, due to COVID, lots of uh, Parisians have realized that they could uh, have a much better lifestyle uh, living in a, in a in a smaller city or on the you know, in the southwest by by the sea, and enjoy some some nice benefits, and it's. Only a you know short train ride to go back to Paris, do your do your fundraise, and then go back to to Bordeaux or to Brittany. So, let's say all the VCs, all the banks' headquarters, and so on, are still in Paris, and you know a lot of them. I think it's hard to avoid the occasional trip to Paris. This being said, there's a, a little bit of uh, you know centrifugal movement to the um, to the other cities following following covid and the ability to do remote work like you know to record this pod podcast uh we didn't have to be in person i could do it from uh, from paris while you're in london so that that helps a lot obviously okay so going back to the challenges and also the opportunities mm -hmm two sides of the coin. You mentioned already the in, insane um, amount of law and regulation and, and codes, which even if it started off as a good idea, whatever it was 200 years ago, ends up growing and growing and growing um, and it is due for a, a complete reformation perhaps um, at, yeah. at some point, even if it is by the whole bloody thing collapses in a heap and, and gets reborn somehow. Which is how, how France works, by the, by the way. There's all, always that saying that France does revolutions, whereas England does evolutions. Yes, yes. Well, I think one of the things that uh, we, we English admire you French for is that you're very good at re being revolting and <laughs> protesting. And it just sort of warms the cockles of my heart to see your French farmers spreading manure all over the government. I wish we, yeah. <laughs> I wish we had that. And, and the, the problem over here, as you will have noticed, is that Britain was kind of fine when it was all sort of very British and very unwritten and everybody just behaved in a certain way. But once you get in particular Parliament, not actually behaving, not actually doing the right thing, then we've got a real problem here because we are no good at revolting at all. So anyway, that's a separate point. But anyway, so um, a bit like in Berlin, there were, I mean, my simple takeaway, there were some huge strengths of being in Berlin, some really cool things about being in Berlin, but there's some awful challenges around having companies and fundraising and, oh my God, what a nightmare. And, you know, maybe the way to end up doing that is, is perhaps a bit like you've done in France, which is that there are some things you don't want to do in Berlin. Don't form a company, don't raise the money. But actually, there's lots of other things that you want to do in, in Berlin. So maybe one splits in this modern way, enabled by technology, of course, as you say. Maybe one splits, I don't know, legal formation and, <laughs> I don't know, labour laws or something and sticks it over here. And maybe one sticks the, the devs over there and the marketing people over here and, and, and this kind of thing. So maybe you just let the listeners know um, from your uh, perspective of not just having travelled around a bit, but now being in Paris. 
what you see the principal opportunities and good news of being a fintech in, in, in Paris tomorrow if somebody wants to form a fintech in Paris. And then equally, as you say, uh, what are the challenges and, and what are the bits that, as it were, you'd be better off exporting if you can out of France into somewhere else? Yeah, so there's no denying that, you know, the labor law, the tax environment and so on, all that stuff is probably a bit more complex in, in France than it is in, in the UK or the US. But I, I'd say it's manageable. Having worked in Germany as well, in many, many respects, I think there's been a lot of adoption of, uh, you know, all the large French companies have moved to digitize processes, e-signatures. I recently had to renew my, my passport and ID card uh, and, you know, it was way more streamlined than it was 10 years ago because you have to renew these docs every 10 years. So there's been a lot of, um, a lot of changes there. And I'd say that the main advantage is that, you know, being based in France gives you access to a deep, pretty deep market that is, in certain respects, quite, ad quite advanced. So, if, like, you know, for us, targeting a lot of e-commerce marketplaces, we've been very surprised to see that we found bigger traction in France than in the UK. And by default, we were... You know, our brain was hardwired in, you know, England has faster adoption rates of all the new trends and so on. Well, actually, most of the large marketplaces are more based in France or in Germany than they are in the UK. Or when it comes to deep tech, there's a vibrant uh, sector ecosystem in, in France. And I think, you know, some also, some talent pools are inherited from local traditions so if you take our world of trade finance, BNP is one of the three leaders globally with Citi and HSBC. Or in the world of trade credit, you know, in trade credit insurance, two out of the three global leaders are based in, in Europe with Allianz Trade and in France with Allianz Trade and COFAS. So that has created pockets of talent pools in those verticals that are extremely dynamic and create a very vibrant payments ecosystem, for instance, in France, with companies like MangoPay, LemonWay, Limonetic, who take the legacy of companies like uh, Ingenico, Worldline, or you know, the, the chip card was invented by a, by a French guy back in the days. So there, there are pockets like this, where the French market is actually quite attractive and less contested than, than the UK. Because of the language barrier, many of the US VCs would, will build their bridgehead in London. And you know, London is much more like a shark tank where every deal is, uh, is contested by many, many, many bidders. Whereas France would offer quite a lot of opportunity, but because of this language barrier, it would be far less contested than, than London. Excellent. Well, let's just expand on this ecosystem point. I mentioned the historical and geographical surround to the rising of, arising of fintech in France. What about the ecosystem where Saudi Arabia spring sticks, mm -hmm. sticks in my mind as the government decided what was going to happen and made it happen and it's got targets for 150 fintechs in five years or, or whatever it is? A very centralised thing. The UK where nobody even knew what Zopa was in 2005 when it formed and nobody really cared for a while and then a few others formed and then 
uh, when it started doing well about 2015 onwards, the government goes, oh, wow, there's some success here. Let's go and kiss babies. Let's go and steal jam. Let's go and plant other people's flags, etc., etc., and then gets involved with its initiatives after the event. How would you summarise the overall ecosystem in terms of government involvement, government support, government creation of the right environment, funding in terms of VCs, a talent pool, all those sort of matters, which are really the, the bread and butter of a day-to-day entrepreneur's life, which either make life easier or more difficult? That's a very tough question, Mike. Ah, <laughs> good. <laughs> it's a very long question as well. Just pick whatever bits yeah. you like. <laughs> in the UK, it strikes me that the government has made some, you know, created some lighter processes for for innovation if you think of like the regulatory sandbox or you know pushing against open banking and making it even more encompassing than psd2 whereas the french government tends to be more conservative and deploy psd2 as slowly as possible so whereas whereas the french government I'd say is more proactive in terms of granting subsidies. So, you know, the non, the, the labor costs are pretty high, but if you are a jeune entreprise innovante, so young, innovative uh, company, you get a tax, a tax break. Um, you get a lot of tax credits on R&D as well. So it's, that kind of um, stuff that the government really pushes. But in general, you know, there's a lot to be said for and against the Macron, uh, Macron presidency, I'm sure. But overall, it's been relatively pro-business. And I think that that has created a catch-up effect. You see a lot of foreign direct investments into France. The amount of, uh, you know, VC money and PE money uh, going into France has massively increased over the past uh, past uh, years. So there's been a general trend of catching up, but a lot of it off the back of subsidies, tax breaks. There's a government called BPI, BPI uh, a government body that invests actually in in, uh, in startups. So about one funding round out of five has support from BPI, wow. which is a kind of almost socialist approach to, to fundraising. Yes, it reminds me of the formation of the East India companies in yeah. the UK, the um, English East India Company. There was a bunch of merchants who had to petition for Yonks, the Queen, to get permission. Oh, yeah, go on then, eventually, she said. And, and they went, went and gone on with it. And uh, whereas in France, whichever king it was at the time, said, we're going to have one of these and you're all going to invest. And, and nobody, none of the barons invested. <laughs> At least a lot of, it, a lot of his money, the, the central um, versus spread out. So uh, coming back to the, the, the present day, I mean, one of the points which is uh, very relevant and the world's in an increasingly flat playing field is that the world of talent. People say there's a lot of talent in London. Yes, but then the price is bid up more and they can't afford to live anywhere. Uh, and London's collapsing and minor matters like that. What's the environment like for getting fintech talent of all sorts in Paris? And then how do you see the future of fintech in Paris? And then we'll move on to Ocador. <laughs> so I don't know if it's a uh, you know, bias or uh, you know, a kind of legacy, but traditionally France has produced a lot of engineers and there's a lot of focus on maths and physics uh, through, throughout your, your education. This is rather good for, for tech because that creates 
a big talent pool with lots of gifted gifted engineers very very strong developers and that creates like some tail, tailwinds for for um, french startups or foreign startups hiring from france and you know in the digital era that war for talent is really really hard and we experience it with uh, our london office every uh, every day and in france but i'm sure in other european countries you can find those uh, local uh, local cities outside of the capital where you find some very decent engineers at a, you know and the the value for money that you get from those people who don't want to live in paris don't want to live in uh, in london is actually very very strong and this is only further supported by the ability to work remotely going forward i would only expect this trend to continue um like you know as a startup you can differentiate from the large companies by offering remote or hybrid work and that really changes the nature of the of the relationship and i think it's actually easier these days for a startup to attract top talent in france than it would be for a large company because you're able to offer you know the best tools a relatively free environment to develop whatever you want and um and hybrid uh working conditions and that creates a package that's unbeatable compared with what you know a more traditional bank would offer excellent well one thing that occurs to me that actually we haven't mentioned on the podcast before uh, talking of anglo-french linguistics is that uh, as you are well aware we call a computer a computer because it is a computer but actually that's an interesting emphasis because it's an emphasis on computation i don't think i do much computation on on my uh, computer you guys call it a coordinateur and certainly if you're an entrepreneur you're coordinateuring uh, quite a lot and i guess i coordinate my emails and my my documents and these kind of things so your word is probably better these days but actually then it occurs to me that neither the french nor the english call it a com- a computer a communicateur, something, something that communicates, because actually a, a lot of what we use computers or phones or tablets for these days is communicating information, is having information flowing around the world. And um, maybe that something in the naming uh, tends to send people down um, one direction. I think the, the computation bit is coming back with all this sort of AI and, and chat GPT and automatic transcription, automatic translation. The computer actually has to sort of scratch its head and do quite a few calculations to... Um, make that work but most of us have this sort of massive thing sitting under our desk and just use it for i don't know skype or email or something Facebook. like that so before we wrap up the show um i'd like to thank all you listeners out there my brand partners for the podcast smartest transforming pensions and retirement worldwide the leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the uk now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like zurich and jp morgan find out more at www.smart.co the listedboard.com your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board in engine of growth today. So, Louis, you've been a very kind guest in terms of sticking to the main course, and we all understand a little bit more about finteching in France than we did, I'm sure, half an hour or so ago. So maybe you would be kind enough now to tell 
the listeners um, about Okodo. Is it a Japanese name? And if so, why? Uh, which is perhaps a more trivial thing. Um, but perhaps more importantly, from a commercial perspective, what it is that you guys do, which of the listeners should be checking you out right away, if what you do is relevant for them, and what your plans are for the future, and minor matters like what do you need more of tomorrow to make you even bigger and better than you are today? Yeah, so Hokodo is a pan-European uh, scale-up that helps merchants and marketplaces sell more by offering instant payment terms to their customers. So think of it as uh, you know, a solution that makes B2B payments simple. And that's actually the link to the Japanese-sounding name Hokodo because we wanted something that would simplify a process that's very complex today, the process of doing a, a transaction B2B and make it sound much more zen than it currently currently is because you know in uh, under the you know the final b2b transaction you have several stages like you know credit uh, credit checks collections insurance financing and all that stuff which we actually bundle in one one platform that allows merchants to essentially sell more by offering better payment terms than than they used to. So think a bit of it like a kind of Klarna of, of B2B. And um, you know, for the rugby fans out there, uh, Hoko Hoko happens to mean trade in Maori. So that's the, the, other, uh, the other wink in the, in the name. And it's fascinating where, you know, what we're going through at the moment because B2B trade is shifting massively. It's an, a fascinating industry. It's thrice as large as B2C, uh, and it's migrating online. You know, about 10% of B2B trade is currently being done online. But what happened in B2C, where you had an entire industry that emerged around B2C commerce, think of it like you know, PayPal, Stripe, Shopify, all those companies that are the scaffolding that facilitates B2C trade online needs to be reinvented in B2B. And uh, Hokodo is at the cutting edge of that, that shift of B2B towards e-commerce. And we provide the best payment systems for companies that want to grow and expand their, their presence online. Excellent. And along with clients, which all businesses always want more of, what do you need more of tomorrow than today to make you bigger and better? So we're expanding internationally uh, because if you think of a, you know, a large merchant in the UK, as, someone, you know, as soon as a company turns over more than 20, 30 million pounds, they start exporting. And that means that they start exporting to France, Germany, the US, you name it. So for us, it's really crucial to support our clients in their growth and be able to help them with our payments in France, in Germany, and wherever. So we, we're currently present in the UK, in France, Benelux, Germany, Spain, and Italy. But in our roadmap for 2024, we want to be able to cover all of, uh, all of Europe, we're also forging a partnership with a, a U.S. company called Balance to be able to support European companies that want to export in the in the U.S. So, with you know covering the U.S. and Europe, we'll be able by the end of 2024 to offer a platform that covers most of the needs of European companies. Excellent. Well, I thank you very much 
for that, Louis, on my behalf and on behalf of the listeners for an excellent tour de force et tour d'horizon about fintech in France. And also, just at a, at a, at a sort of more personal level, uh, you've reminded me that I've been meaning to go to Alsace for decades because it's such a beautiful area, some beautiful towns, along, along with the beautiful wine and the beautiful... And good people, wines as well. Very yeah. good wines, yes. So I must actually bring it nearer the top of my uh, uh, to-do list than it has been for quite some time. So I wish you and Okudor every success in the future. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light dance with me. 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 Watch the